This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, here we go. It is the Midlife Mail Podcast. I am your host, Greg Scheinman. Thank you once again for joining me on the program. If you like what you hear, please give us that five-star review, the thumbs up, tell your friends, other guys, family members, whoever. Let's spread the show, get it out there, keep the midlife male movement growing. Thank you for all the feedback on last week's episode with PJ Nessler from XPT. That's xptlife.com. Check it out. Give it a listen. Go visit their site. I was pumped up. Got out in the pool last week a couple of times. Did a few XPT workouts. Feeling really, really good. What else is going on? Went to an incredible seminar event that EO Entrepreneurs Organization Houston put on with Dan DePani. Dan DePani is a monk, actually now a priest, living in New York. Really, really interesting experience on the nine practical spiritual tools and insights for living a purpose-focused life. So check out Dan DePani. You can find him online. You can find him on Instagram. Interesting stuff. Hope to have him on the show in the future, but really enjoyed that. Thanks again to EO Houston for inviting me. Been doing a lot of boxing lately. Really enjoy it. Having a lot of fun with it. Uh, but my hand, particularly my my knuckle and thumb area, has been uh, killing me. Swelling up. Problems with it. So... Went to see my trainer this morning, and what did he do? Actually taught me how to wrap my hands. Went over how I was wrapping my hands, how wrong I was doing it, wrongly I was doing it, and completely redid it and taught me how to wrap each one of my hands, why we were wrapping them this way, what we were doing, and then spent a bunch of time working on how I was punching, how I was striking to see where, how, and why I might be having some of these, some of these issues. And it got me thinking a lot about the value of a professional, who you surround yourself with, how you choose your trainer, uh, your broker, your partners, anything. The value of working with somebody who can educate you, who can make you better, who understands your goals and your needs, and then not only meets those expectations, but exceeds them and helps you get where you get where you want to go. So appreciate the little things. Had a great session, feel a lot better, hands feel a lot better, feel like feel like I walked away learning something new that I can now apply each and every time I go back in there. So, hey, thanks, Woody. Appreciate that. Really, really good stuff. On the show today, 
we have Jeff Mayen. Jeff is a chef and partner at Let Us Entertain You Enterprises, one of the largest restaurant groups in the country. And he is the chef and originator, entrepreneur, restaurateur behind Stella Barra Pizzeria, one of my favorite places out in Santa Monica. If you're out there, check it out. It is awesome. He is also an elite level cyclist. And we're going to hear from Jeff, and he's going to take us through his story from being kicked out of high school all the way through to where he is now, having reclaimed his health, his ability to be vulnerable, be humble, be healthy, practice self-care, really, really interesting stuff. We get a little... A little deep here on this one, both of us talking about our relationships with our fathers uh, and what we've learned on the way up, success, failure, struggles with drugs, alcohol, lifestyle, and how, how he turned all that stuff around. Really, really cool episode. Appreciate Jeff for doing it, the way he opened up and the way he spoke. He's also the founder of a super cool new CPG company called Split Nutrition. If you like your PB&J, like I do, or your almond butter, like I do, then you're going to love Split Nutrition. Check it out. Super cool. Start your day with it. Take it with you on your workouts. Jeff will fill you in a lot more on that as well. But let's get to know the man behind Split, behind Stella Barra, and who he is here on the Midlife Mail podcast, Jeff Mahan. Midlife Mail podcast time, Greg Scheinman here with my guest today, special guest, very excited to have Jeff Mahan on the line with me. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Hey, it's, it's, it's awesome to have you here. So, Jeff is a chef a restaurateur, uh, a cyclist. We're going to get into all of that stuff. Um, I first want to know, what do you do this morning? What do you do when you wake up? Do you have a routine? Oh, I'm, I am. It's actually the only thing that's pretty consistent in my life. I mean, from owning restaurants and CPG companies and just sort of the, the chaos of, of being me, um, mornings are unbelievably special to me. So uh, I have a, a very specific routine. Uh, that includes like food and coffee. So like uh, this morning, uh, I woke up at 5:30. Uh, I'm I've really trained myself. The minute the alarm goes off, I just to, to get out of bed because I typically am tired and sore from exercise or just life. So if uh, if I didn't jump right out of bed, I would definitely stay there. Um, and I love waking up early. I mean, being a restaurant person for most of my life, that was not the case. Um, but you know, I've really adapted to this this. You know, waking up early, it's just this calm time. It's still before 9 a.m. on the East Coast since I live in Los Angeles, so no one really bothers me. Um, first thing I do, have a glass of water um, and a cup of coffee, kind of wake up the day. And then I have a ritual of eating a spoonful of jam and uh, a spoonful of almond butter. Um, which is sort of like I eat that every time before I exercise. 
and that will go into split later on of like why that became. Um, and then I, I, you know, I spent like 20 or 30 minutes, like reading the news, like catching up in world events and like drink a coffee. And it's like, this like time of like, I'm awake. I kind of like sort of come into the day calmly. Like I hate like waking up late and like feeling rushed. And, uh, so I sort of like take half an hour to collect myself. Uh, and then from there, I, I ride a bike for about an hour and a half to two hours, uh, depending on, I have a coach, um, named Adam Pulford, who's an incredible guy, typically gives me like what to do training wise and, um, like structure. And, you know, the reason I went for a coach was, you know, I got so good at cycling to where I could get to myself, but then I needed that extra guidance of like someone to actually give me, um, you know, guide me, you know, teach me about how to get better. And I actually taught me a lot. Um, so this morning I did the routine. I left the house by, uh, six 30. I was on the bike and I rode 40 miles, uh, came home, uh, made three scrambled eggs, ate a banana, uh, and a bowl of oatmeal, uh, had some more water and drank a coffee. And that could be basically every morning and I'd be happy. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. So at the house, okay, what, what's your relationship situation now? Are you alone? Do you deal with alone? Do you have a significant other partner? What, what's going on at, ho- at home? Uh, I, I have a, a beautifully and lovely girlfriend uh, named Madeline Starkey. She's, she lives with me, so we live together. Um, you know, uh, she moved into my apartment, but is now definitely her apartment because uh, I'm a smart male. Uh, and I know that she is a boss at all times. So, <laughs> it's, um, but it's great. You know, she, she's a big, uh, athlete as well. So she, we understand, you know, the, the need, uh, for athletics and, you know, it's funny, like our living room is, you know, has like a nice couch and a table, but then it has like a big bucket of like yoga mats and weights and, and rollers. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good fit for a relationship. Yeah. I was reading, um, piece on you earlier and, at the top of it, I'm staring at it right now, it says chaos and structure. <laughs> yeah, that is basically, uh, I love that. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, everything in my life that I've been drawn to really has, you know, those two as, as the epicenter, you know, uh, the pulse of it from working in restaurants and kitchens, you know, like it, it is the ultimate chaos and structure that, you know, you think in restaurants that you wake up and you go to work and it's a restaurant and, you pretty much do the same thing every day. You serve the same food on the same menu with the same recipe with the same people uh, and the same hours of operation. And so you would imagine that it's, it's always really smooth and it's, it, you know, could be even boring, but that's not the case. Restaurants, you know, every day is different, you know, from customer experience or food coming in wrong. And there's always something going on. And there's also this like quest for trying to make something better. And so, I think what's made me successful as a chef is that I'm really have a really hard time being satisfied. And that makes me, I guess, a good athlete too, that like, I'm never like, Oh, cool. I did 400 Watts for this long. I, I feel good about this. I never have to be better. I think, you know, because yeah, I, I got you know, I had a messed up childhood. I got kicked out of high school. Like I've always had this insecurity that I'm never going to make it. Like I'm never going to be good enough. And you know, so therefore, I have this sort of insatiable hunger of like succeeding and to always to do better. And restaurants are a perfect environment for that. If like you make a dish, it's great today, but like maybe tomorrow we can make it even better. And they evolve, and I think that's a lovely part of it. 
um, being an athlete has actually helped uh, how I think about food and cooking um, and, and sort of how I take an approach to that too. Yeah, I don't want to just jump right by this. So I want to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. You, you casually mentioned it there. Well, I got kicked out of high school. You know, cool. so, like, well, tell me a little bit about your your childhood, your upbringing, and I guess ultimately those teen years that resulted in you getting kicked out of high school. How, how does that happen? Well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a few incidents. Uh, so I think it goes back a little bit further that, like, you know, I, I was born in 83, and I was kind of like the poster child for ADD or ADHD. And, you know, at the time, Ritalin was really taking effect. And, um, you know, I don't think we, we still have a hard time teaching. But back, in, you know, then, like, we definitely didn't know how to teach kids with ADD. And so my problem is I was just disruptive. I liked that chaos. Like, if we were in a quiet classroom doing nothing like my mind was moving a million miles a minute and like I didn't realize why I needed the chaos but then I would you know I was a class clown I would speak up I would instigate I would argue for the sake of arguing and like you know you know then I was just this bad kid um that was disruptive and 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 went against the flow and now I was I can look back as you know a mature adult and say man like all I needed was more stimulus like I just needed more information, more learning, more, you know, things, uh, mm-hmm. more attention for the most part. And unfortunately, like, especially in school, like the, you know, the more disruptive you are, the less attention you get, you know, the more they kind of put you in a corner because they have an obligation to teach these other kids. And I totally get that. Um, and so I had a chip on my shoulder as a kid for sure. Like I was just angry and, you know, like couldn't find my place and never really felt like I fit in and, you know, so then I started doing drugs and smoking cigarettes in an early age, and it was just really self-detrimental uh, because at the same time, no one was telling me I was going to be great. No one was, you know, sort of supporting me that saying like, you know, and by no one, I meant like, you know, my parents were there and like, you know, my dad was super supportive and, but, you know, it was like no teachers, no one like in these other kind of curricular activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, like, if no one's making investments in me, like, why would I make investments in myself? So, uh, you know, I just became, you know, like a dummy, you know, like I just was just rude and, and, and gotten fights and, you know, cause I was just looking for an outlet for this passion that I have in me and this drive that I've now learned to cultivate. And I was horrible, man. Like I, I would, I was just, I was a relentless kid um, through that. Uh, it got me arrested a few times. Uh, it definitely got me in trouble. I was on probation. I was a ward of the state. Um, and it didn't matter to me. Like, it was like, this is the path that I was on. It was okay. Like, no one expected anything from me, so why would I expect anything from me? And um, I took that approach with everything. It was this, this really negative approach. And um, I, uh, you know, I got, you know, high school, I wasn't doing very well. I never did my homework. You know, uh, I would just be really defiant. And I got into a fight in high school and, and, you know, kept getting in fights and I threw a chair at a principal and that was kind of like the line in the sand. They're like, all right, like you don't need to come back. Um, and I remember there's this really interesting turning point. You know, my dad, it, uh, both my parents have PhDs are both super smart. Uh, my dad was a professor at UC Berkeley for civil engineering. Like, 
really like, unbelievably smart uh, people. And so here I was getting kicked out of high school freshman year. Um, and like I was driving home or my dad was driving, but I like, was driving home and, and I was like, why aren't you mad? And he just looked at me and goes, Hey man, this is your life. Like you're just making it harder. He's like, this is now just going to be harder. It's not going to be impossible, but it's now harder. And like, man, that like stuck with me. Like he wasn't mad. He was just trying to tell me to stay to the, the union. Like, man, like now that you don't have a high school diploma, like you're going to have to work harder. Uh, and that was the first time I really understood that. Uh, I got my GED. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, cause not many 15 year old kids do, but to, in order to get my GED, I needed to be gainfully employed. Uh, and so I got a job at a Denny's, um, cause they would hire a 15 year old kid. Um, and I worked the graveyard shift and it was the first time that I ever felt included in something. And so I didn't play team sports and stuff like that. It was the first time, like I fell in love. Like I went in there, you could smoke cigarettes you listen to rap music and play with like fire and knives and it was chaos and people swore all the time. And like, it was heaven. Um, and I fell into it. I fell into it like a fever, you know, just, it was, it was perfection. And I had no idea what fancy was. Like, I didn't know that there was a Michelin guide. I didn't know that there was $500 meals. Like we grew up eating like, you know, the, the Chinese food place down the street from our house and you know, like a lot of like sushi and like to go food and, you know, like my dad was never a cook, like a hamburger helper was like a pretty like prime meal in our household. So, um, you know, like I think the only thing he ever cooked and like, I miss this to this day is like he would make these overcooked scrambled eggs with cheese in them on Sundays. And like, I still have this affinity for eggs and cheese uh, to this day because of that. And this quick pancakes, but that was about the, uh, the culinary highlight of uh, his abilities. Um, and so going to the restaurants, and, you know, I found a home, like I found people I liked, you know, and I, and I, it was the first time in my life I really felt successful uh, doing something. And it's funny to like, say like you felt successful working at Denny's, but it was like, I felt good at something. I was never good at anything. I was never good at school. I was never good at sports. Like, it's never really good. I was never a good kid. Like, but cooking, I was good at. I was good at the high intensity. I was good at the chaos. I I loved it. And, you know, I think someone took note to that. And I remember they're like, you should go to culinary school. Like you should, you should per, per, like pursue this. And I, I had no idea what culinary school was. I was like, well, I don't like, you can go to school for cooking. Like I didn't, I never even thought like you could make a living off cooking. I just never, like, I was so young. And so I went to culinary school and, you know, applied and, you know, you didn't really apply. It's not hard to get in. You just sort of pay for play. And, you know, I, I, again, I fit in, like, it was amazing. Like there was all these, you know, people who like were kind of broken, but taped together. And that's what it takes to be in the restaurant business. I think, um, who were like me and they were passionate and it was like art and chaos and you were allowed to scream and express yourself. And, you know, like the whole idea was like drive and focus, like be better. And like, that was my taste. Like it was my, like, that was my drug for sure. Like just do better, just be better. And like the ability to be better, the ability to like cut something better and, you know, sharpen a knife better and know a recipe better and taste better. Like it was a race every day. And I loved it. I love the race. 
Um, and so when I was 17, I um, needed to find a job because I was living there. And I, I, you know, someone there got me connected with the guys at Nobu in New York. And like, I loved, I loved Japanese food. It's like my favorite food in the world. Like I respect it so much of like all the cuisines in the world. Like that is the one that like I admire the most. Um, what years were you at Nobu? When were you there? 2001 during 9-11. So right at the turn of the millennium. Um, I was right there in Tribeca in 95, 97, ordering from Nobu basically every day up to, up to the Miramax offices around the corner. Oh, my gosh. So I lived on Greenwich and Duane, uh, like three blocks south, and I rented this room from this lovely woman, and it wasn't a room. It was a, it was a closet or a pantry in her kitchen that somehow she fit a bed into. Um, and I remember it was like a single bed, and a dresser, and you couldn't open the dresser without sitting, like, like, well, like, standing next to the bed. You had to, like, sit on the bed because it wasn't wide enough. And I, I, was, I would pay, like, all of my salary while I worked there. And, you know, I had no idea how fancy Nova was when I was a kid, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. I, mean, I didn't know what Kobe beef was. Like, we came from pretty, like, middle class. Like, we never hurt for much. But, like, my dad was a single dad. He lived paycheck to paycheck. Like, he was a professor and engineer. Like, wasn't he wasn't very great with money. Like, it was kind of like he did he did the best he could with us. And so, like, we never went to a hundred dollar person meal, let alone a few hundred. Um, and I'd never been to New York, so I, you know, I, so I get there and I was so naive. Um, and the guy, you know, I remember the first day, the guy's like, "Have you ever, you know, butchered a New York steak before?" I was like, "Yeah, I butchered like twice." So I wasn't really lying, but I was definitely lying. <laughs> And, you know, he's like, could, this one's Kobe beef. It's like $19 an ounce. Don't mess it up. And I was like, and he didn't say mess it up. I assure you. Um, there's some other words. Uh, you, could, you could say it however you want. Okay. All right. Awesome. Uh, and then I can fly. I've been trying to hold on to swear. Uh, but yeah, there was a definitely expression of don't fuck it up. Uh, and I was like, Oh, okay. And so like I took it and he's like, you gotta go faster, man. And so man, you just told me not to screw this up. But like, I can go faster. And I remember the first few nights, like, I had nightmares for the first few months of working there. Like, I'd wake up in a cold sweat of, like, losing tickets. And I remember one night, I was working grill, and, like, it was just hammered. You know how busy it was. And um, I was working at grill station, and I had, like, 20 tickets in, in front of me. And they're all in, like, Japanese. And, like, you got to got to learn them. And, like, there was no, like, training culture. They threw it in. They're like, here you go, buddy. Have fun. And they all went blank. I just remember that they all just disappeared. They were all there. I just couldn't see anything. And there's this guy named Frankie who was next to me. He kind of elbowed me. He goes, don't worry. The words will come back. And like, that was one of those other moments where I was like, huh? Like, like I obviously like, it didn't just happen to me. It happened to everyone. Like, and that was like, that was like boot camp. Like it was, you know, such a learning experience and to see the precision and the perfection of the food and man, I was 17 in New York. Like I had no friends. I had no money. I couldn't buy drugs or drink or do anything. Like I had a skateboard and I was so lonely. But like what I did was like, I would walk from Tribeca to like top of Central Park and back on my days off. Cause I, I, I couldn't do anything. I didn't know what to do. You know, it was New York. It was intimidating. So like, I just walked and listened to music and like, I would go sit in restaurants and just watch, you know, and order like a drink or an iced tea and just watch how they worked. And like, I fell in love with restaurants. I, I fell in love with like the idea that restaurants were so much bigger than these, like the small town that I grew up in that like people actually did them. Like 
they were like careers, like there were chandeliers, there were, you know, people in suits, like it was a whole world that I, I had no idea about. And I kind of made this decision that like, I really, like, I loved it. I really like, I wanted to make something myself in restaurants. So I wanted to like compete. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I've always had this like insecurity that like, man, like I, you know, like I have a GED, I, I got a, a year of high school. Like I couldn't tell you most of the state capitals or, you know, really much. And I, so I felt kind of inferior that way. And I kind of wanted to go back to school and I sort of figured like, this is a learning experience um, in New York and I matured and um, I moved back uh, to the Bay area and I, I got into a junior college and I was so used to working in restaurants at like 16 hours a day and chaos and like hard work that like, you know, like they're like, Oh, your maximum curriculum is like 14 points. And I was like, I can do double that. Like, and still work a job. Like this is fine. And like, I wasn't really great at English. I still can't spell for the life of me or tell you what a, an adverb is. Um, but I was really good at math. Like, I understood it. Now I didn't understand math, but like I understood how to do it because math was like a recipe. Like I, if I, if I did this, this, and this, and like it would end up like this and I could follow a recipe and I understood the following of a recipe and I understand like, and so like I, I, I really attached to math and there was a professor there named Julie Good, um, who I don't know where she is to this day, but if she ever listens to this, like she made such an impact on my life, she saw potential in me and she was the first teacher to ever see potential in me. And she's like, Hey, you should be, you know, in calculus. And I was like, like, I, I, I don't even know algebra, like any or geometry, trigonometry, any of those things. And she's like, I can teach you those in two weeks over summer school. Like just come to my office every day for, you know, an hour for the next two weeks. And like, I'll teach you. Like you need to know these three triangles and you know, this, this, and this. And it's like, she's like, it's going to be hard and you're going to be struggling, but I believe that you can do it. And like, just her saying that she believed in me was like rocket fuel. Like I was like, yes, I'm going to prove, like, I'm, I'm not going to let her down. And she, she held her word. I ended up doing calculus with her, then the calc two. And like, then I became like a tutor for some math things that she did. And like, I loved it, man. And so from there, I, um, I got into, I applied to UC Berkeley as a sophomore. Uh, both my parents went there, like, and I felt this really incredible need to um, kind of go there uh, to impress my parents. I think as every kid kind of wants to. Um, How old and I got in when you got there. Uh, I was like two thousand, two thousand four, maybe. About the timeline. Yeah, like probably twenty twenty one. Okay. Like 20? Starting at Berkeley at 21. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, uh, again, it was kind of like going to Nobu. Like, I had no idea how smart people really were in life. And, like, I never hung out with the kids who were really good at school. Um, and then you get to Berkeley where everyone's real smart. Um, and I remember my first math class, like, we got our first test. And I thought I was really good at math. And there was, like, two kids in class. One was, like, 14, um, who just, like, happened to be a genius and was going to Berkeley at 14, so that's good. Um, like, two kids were getting, like, 90s on the test, and, like, everyone else was failing, including me. I was getting, like, a 20. Like, 
like it was like it was like oh my god what am i doing and so you know i went there for a year and while i was there like i missed restaurants i would read more cookbooks and school books like i would you know read about all these cool restaurants in the world that were doing all this fun stuff and um you know and i i had been to europe and lived there for a little bit in an exchange program for like a summer school thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially in Spain and like the food was just so much different. And, you know, so one night I, you know, drunkenly and kind of like haphazardly applied to a restaurant called the fat duck. And this was like in 2005. And, um, and I got an email back from a guy named Chris Young, who is the head of the um, science lab. Cause restaurants have science labs. Um, and this restaurant just got us three Michelin stars, just one best restaurant in the world. Um, and it was like just doing incredible things. And I got an email and said, Hey, I looked at your resume. Do you think you can move out to England in two weeks? And I was like fully enrolled in Berkeley and had an apartment and everything. And I was like, of course I can. That sounds like a great idea. (laughs) And you know, uh, I, I was like, I just need it. And, it, you know, like I had this epiphany that, you know, like for the first time in my life, like I always felt dumb compared to the smart kids. And I always felt like, like just not as good. Right. Just, I, I wasn't as smart or I didn't work hard enough. And for the first time in my life, I kind of like figured that I had a leg up on them that all these kids were going to Berkeley and they were all super smart, but no one really knew what they wanted to do. Like they didn't like they didn't have like they didn't know what they wanted to do for their life, and I did. Like it was I knew something they didn't for the first time. I was like, awesome, I'm doing it. So like I went and you know I uh, I I dropped out and I went to my dad's office who was in the engineering department and I walked in. I said, Dad, I I was going to tell you, uh, I just dropped out of school because I want to move to England and work at this restaurant called the Fat Duck and it's the best restaurant in the world and. And before I could even like sort of prove my point, he's like, finally, I was like, what? And he's like, I never wanted you to go to college. He's like, I always wanted you to cook. That was what made you the happiest. And I was like, that'd be nice to know like a year ago, like, <laughs> you know, like, thanks for that. Um, you know, and like, you know, my dad was interesting, like, you know, kind of hippie, real smart engineer, like so really tangible, like, like he just was one of those persons. as long as his kids were happy and healthy, like, he had his life and he was just stoked for us. Like there was no pressure of success. It was just, as long as we were doing something that we liked, he was fine. And like, mm-hmm. it was this like really cool moment. And I was like, Oh, and then, so I flew to England. I rented a room with um, a family that sort of hosted young kids. And again, I was one more experience where I was absolutely out of my depth. That Like, you know, we, we were talking about how Nobu was, Fancy, you know, like, you know, I love Nobu. Nobu's one of my favorite restaurants, but like compared to the Fat Duck, like there it is a totally different world. Um, it is, you know, there's 45 cooks making, you know, food for 36 people. And like they did one lunch and one dinner. And, you know, like the amount of energy that went into one dish, like not only from a physical labor point and a skill point, just from like, you know, like, Dishes would take a, a year or two years to finally be developed to put on a menu. Like this was the like epitome of like trying to understand the perfection of food. Like 
we worked in a science lab and, you know, Chris is an incredible guy. He wrote modernist cuisine with Nathan Miravold and he's like, has a chef steps right now. And like, he is like such a smart person and he became a really big mentor to me. And then there was another guy in the lab named Kyle, um, Kanahan, who now has uh, single thread farms in Healdsburg. I think they just got their third Michelin star. It's my favorite restaurant I've ever been to. Like Kyle is one of the most talented chefs in the world. And like, I, you know, it's, if no one's gone listening, like single thread farms is special. Um, and it's like, it's it just, everything about it is amazing. So like here I was young, this was like 2006. So, you know, so like twenties and just starry eyed and working in a science lab with like unbelievably like talented people. And like, it was again, like I was just a competition of like, I loved it. Like I was working all these times, like, and I just kept surrounding myself with great people. Um, and, uh, those are really special sort of defining moments. Now it was hard and, you know, I screwed up a bunch. I was still a kid. I would go out clubbing on the weekends and take way too many drugs. And like, you know, if I took it, like if I was my age now, it would be a total different story. I would be more mature and like, I would take it a lot more serious, but like, you know, that's that's what happens when you're young. Um, When do you start? Yeah, go go ahead. Yeah. Well, I said, so fast forward, um, you know, I became kind of arrogant at that point. Um, like I was good at what I did. I was good at fine dining. Um, I was driven and I didn't really have a lot of, uh, mentors that were caring in that, like in caring in like the compassionate way. It was more like, like it's, it's all or nothing. It's sort of brute force a little bit. There was a lot of yelling and screaming and and, mm-hmm. and things, and so that became my leadership mentality. And I think it became a lot of chefs' leader leadership mentalities. Like we're emotional people. Like food is very passionate. To work in restaurants is very passionate. So like when something goes wrong, we throw temper tantrums. We break plates. We scream. We swear. Like I did especially. Like it was I bullied people. Um, because I didn't know how to express myself. I, I never, uh, I developed a lot of things. I developed a, a lot of uh, abilities, but emotional maturity was not one of them. Um, and so that was kind of where I burnt out on fine dining. I was working at a very fancy restaurant, had three Michelin stars, and I was just a dick. Like, I was mean to people. I was mean to myself. Like, I never made investments in myself, and I got burnt out. Um, and you know, like I just, I fell out of love with restaurants at that point because it became about being better than like the smoking cigarettes and playing hip hop and, you know, working with fire and knives. Like there's no being better at Denny's. Like you can be, but like, it was fun. It was chaos. It was what I fell in love with. And, you know, I got to a point where I forgot about that and I forgot about why I started cooking and it was all about ego and the best and having the best knife and having the best chef's coat and using the best caviar and telling people that they're not the best as opposed to making people happy by cooking food for them. Um, 
And that was, that was when I got out of fine dining. How do you turn that around? So you come to that kind of realization. Right? Yeah. Still at an early stage of your career. Right? Not the, the healthiest, you know, as, as you said. Yeah. As, and you've moved halfway across the world, you know, to do this. Where, where do you go from there? How do you well, at that, and, um, you know, I guess it's, it's like with anything, like you want to, I wanted to quit. Um, I wanted to get out of the kitchen and I was like, maybe I'll go in the front of the house. I never really made a lot of money. And, um, and I was done. Like, I think I was living in Chicago at the time and, you know, I was working in a restaurant uh, that was owned by a guy named Rich Melman from Let Us Entertain You. Um, really infamous guy. Um, and, you know, the most successful restaurateur, I think, to this day. Like, incredible guy. Um, and I had a few interactions with him, but I had no idea who he was. Like, he came in the restaurant a few times, and we talked. And, like, we kind of had a spark, like, about creativity. And I was going to go work at a restaurant called Alinea, um, and my friend Dave was the chef there and he got me a job and he like put his neck on the line and he like vouched for me. And it's again, another super fancy restaurant, you know, still to this day. And I was, I was, you know, sort of set up to work there. Like I went in and I interviewed, I did everything. And, you know, Dave really like, was like, this is a guy we got to hire him. And like a, a week before I went to go work there, Rich called me and he was like, Hey, can you meet for a cup of coffee? And I was like, okay, sure. Like, and so we met at this restaurant called hub 51, which is his uh, two sons, uh, first restaurant they opened um, with the company. And we had a conversation. We had probably like a three hour talk and it was one of the most impactful conversations I think I've ever had in my entire life because it was one of the first times he actually asked me, like, like anyone asked me, like, what do you actually want to do? Like, where do you want to be? Like, for the most part, like, when I was in restaurants, like, it was about the now. It was about being the best now and, like, continuing just to be better. But, like, there was no five-year plan or ten-year plan or mm -hmm. anything. It was, you know, sort of the, the current. And, like, Rich is a really interesting guy. Like, for as successful as he is, like, he's really smart, but he's really caring. Like, he actually genuinely cares. And when you talk to them, like, you can hear that. And he asks real questions. And... By the end of the conversation, like, I told him my entire story. I told him about, like, you know, like, things I would never tell people I was ended up telling him, you know. And, like, deepest, darkest secrets and insecurities, because like, it just felt like a safe place to do it. And he offered, you know, at the end of the, the conversation, he's like, how about I give you a job? And the guy obviously, like, worked for the company and, and laughed. And, I, and, and he's like, how about, like, you work with me? Um, you'd be in like our test kitchen. You'd work with me every single day. Um, we just work on developing food. And I was like, huh. And I was like, man, like I have a chance to work with one of the greatest restaurateurs ever to live a day to day. Like, and I, he's like, you have to make a decision now, you know? And so I, I accepted, uh, I burnt that bridge with Dave and Alinea and obviously Dave got an immense amount of grief from it, I'm sure. Uh, and just to clarify, Dave is still my best friend. I saw him this morning. Uh, I still love him immensely, but uh, I will absolutely pay tribute to the amount of grief I'm sure he got for my uh, reneging on that deal. Um, 
But, you know, so I, I, I have this one sort of story that sums up my time with Rich. You know, obviously I'm still partners with him. But, you know, again, I had that arrogance, right? Like, and that's not something you just really give away. Um, and so I just thought it was better cooked than anyone he had on his staff. And he he's like, you know, I really want to work on this pie. He's like, can you make me a really good cherry pie? And I was really good at pastry, and I was like, of course. And so, like, I spent, like, three days, like, finding the best cherries, and I made, like, a fluid gel with these, like, um, you know, like, gelling things of, like, cherry juice that was, like, strained. And I probably made, like, a $90 cherry pie, you know, that took, like, three days to make. It was impossible to replicate any kind of store. But I, like, put so much ego into it, you know, and he ate it and goes, eh, it's fine. Like, it's not great. And he was right. Like, it wasn't great. It wasn't cherry pie. It was something, but it wasn't what cherry pie was supposed to be. And he's like, let me, let me show you something. Like, get in his car, and he's like, I'm going to show you cherry pie. And I was like, okay. So we go to one of his restaurants called Joe and Stone Crab in Chicago, and they're famous for pies. And he goes in there, and they're making, like, 150 pies. Like, it's just, like, this production thing. And, like, they're just rolling out the pie crust. And it's like, they're, like, I'm so used to, like, people, like, measuring things and, like, perfected, like, perfect cuts. And, like, they had this as, like, these people are just, like, killing it, man. Like, they were just going to town, like, rolling out the stuff. And they're obviously so busy. I never worked in a restaurant like that that was so busy. And, like, just, like, it was so heavy-handed to, like, make these pies. And I was, like, appalled. I was, like, oh, my God. Like, this is so bad. And again, that arrogance. And then I had a slice of pie. I was like, fuck, that's really good. You know? And he's like, like, you kind of like, you got to get out of your own head. Like, and like, I, it was this really like aha moment of like, Hey man, like maybe food can just be good. Like maybe you can take all the, like take the foundation you learned, which I won't naysay it, but like, maybe it can be simple. Maybe simple is actually can be better. And I worked with Rich for like two years as a corporate chef uh, and like spent a lot of time with him. He became like a father figure to me. We spent a lot of time together. I opened up restaurants with him and he really taught me how to care about people. Like he got me into therapy um, to care for myself. He, he got me to quit smoking. Like he, he did a lot of things for me that the guy who runs, you know, 150 restaurants doesn't have to do. Um, but he made investments in me and like, again, like I never had made investments in myself up until this point. Like I never cared about me genuinely. And he started teaching me that it was okay to do that. Like I always felt that was selfish to like, we talked about my morning routine, like that's selfish. I spend three hours for myself every morning. I do not let anyone mess that up. And so on the outside looking in, that could be selfish. But to me, I need to develop that for myself so I can care for other people. And that's something he always said to me. He's like, you can't care for other people unless you care for yourself. And like, I never understood that until I started to actually care for people. Um, with that. Sorry? It's, it's, it's huge. Uh, and it's become a common, common theme uh, on the show. And it's certainly one for me. And I just sit here listening to you and go, it's so spot on and true about the person that you have the ability to be once you start actually paying attention to yourself and taking care of yourself. Man. And that's like, 
and that's like all before athletics. And like, if once you apply, and I, I promise I'll get to it real soon. Like once you apply the athletic component to that thought process, it is life changing. Um, Cause the like, industry by nature has never really been, again, a particularly healthy industry. You know, the no, it, it, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. It is, it's filled with drugs and abuse and addiction and like chaos and, like it's it's great for addicts. Like it's great for people who love that adrenaline rush, like me, and you know. And it's also like artistry and beautiful, and like I just but like there's like there wasn't a lot of like health. Like we never when we made a dish at most of the restaurants I've ever worked in, like we never said, hey, how is this person gonna feel tomorrow? Or like, you know, mm-hmm. is this a good fat we're giving them or is it a bad fat? Like we never talked about metabolism or health. Like I worked in some restaurants, we put some like. A pretty weird stuff in food that I'm sure made someone's stomach upset just because it would make the food cooler. Like it would do something visual or like we would defy like gravity with it. Um, and like, and so not to like get off a subject. So like I, I, Rich gave me an opportunity to do something. He's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to get back to like simple cuisine. And he's like, well, do you know how to make pizza? And I was like, no, but I think I'd like to know how to make pizza. I'd like to learn it, like, and, and to work on it. He goes, I have an idea, and, you know, to open this pizzeria in California, in Santa Monica. And, like, living in Northern California and growing up in, like, you know, the East Bay, like, you were bred to hate Los Angeles. Like, <laughs> you were, it, it is, like, part of, like, growing up in, like, Northern California is, like, they, like, hand you a training manual, and, like, page one is, like, hate L.A., Oh, and I was like, oh, God, I hate L.A. Like, I would never want to go there. Um, And, you know, I started making pizza, and I loved making bread and pastry, and, like, I fell in love with making pizza. Like, I finally re-found that love of cooking that I found early on with making pizza. Like, it was fun. Like, you could throw in the air. Like, you can manipulate it. Like, it was something that was really interesting. And so like we made a really good pizza and took like six months to figure out the crust and where the flour came from. And uh, we, I opened up Stella Barra, which was called Stella Rosa in Santa Monica mm-hmm. uh, about like oh, seven years ago. Um, which we learned, by the way, long before. It's, <laughs> it's like that's, that's our place for Santa Monica. Uh, oh, it's uh, good coming from someone who's been in New York. Uh, <laughs> I think it's also part of the New York manuscript is the hate LA pizza. So, uh, <laughs> I'm a born and raised New Yorker who had to get out of that city also now ends up in Houston, Texas, which is not exactly famous for pizza, but yeah. you talk about hating LA or, or, or that area. And that's, I don't hate LA, but quite frankly, we don't even consider Santa Monica. Like, no, we never leave, you know, Santa Monica, Venice. We don't even go into like LA, LA. Anymore. Yeah, why would you? It's Santa Monica. It's paradise, man. Um, like I saw dolphins the other day. I, I just tell people, I'm like, I get to ride my bike in the mountains and I see dolphins. Like, I don't know if it gets much better than that. Um, we land, we go straight to the water. We're right down there in Santa Monica. And between Santa Monica and Venice, like we're in our happy place. So that's <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, so I, you know, I opened up this, and so like I opened this restaurant up, and there was a bunch of like line cooks, so like their mission in life wasn't to become a Michelin star chef or to have a restaurant or to do anything like their mission in life was just to have a job and try to get paid maybe a dollar extra an hour in six months. Like these guys weren't like, they didn't know what, you know, 
the difference between white steel and blue steel was. They didn't know what Brigard jackets were and like they didn't understand like cooking germs. Like they just wanted a job. And you know, the first year of that restaurant was probably one of the most like special times of my life where like we were a family. Um, and I still actually, there are people still at Stella now that were there day one, um, seven years later, uh, which is incredible. Um, but have been with me for seven years and like, I just, I, I, I have such a special place in my heart for those guys. Um, but like, you know, we try to, I try to emancipate myself from this fine dining thing and I want to get out of it. I want to go back to like what I loved. And so like we played nineties hip hop. Like I like would never wear a chef's coat again. Like it was like a t-shirt or like a dishwasher shirt. Like we broke the rules. Like we, we took, you know, nothing was from Italy. Like even the prosciutto was from America and like, it was kind of like, we don't want to do Italian pizza. We want to do California pizza. Like we had a baker's pride oven that wasn't wood fired. It was gas. Like I bought it used upside down. Like we put dough balls in jars and you know, like I guess what it was like, we started winning awards. Um, we started, we got best pizza in the country. We got, I got Forbes 30 under 30, you know, we got all this, these accolades and man, like we didn't know what we were doing. Like I was never like this pizziola who spent time in like, Italy. Like I just made bread with stuff on top of it. And I loved it. And like, you know, but like, it was fun. It was what I signed up for in the very beginning. Like, like the restaurant was packed and it was busy. And like, you know, like I genuinely cared for everyone that was there and worked for me. You know, and with that being said, like, I was still doing drugs. I was still drinking. I was still smoking. Um, I was still doing a lot of stuff that, like, hurt me. And, you know, it's just, I was burning the candle at every end. And I started just letting these people down. Like, I just would show up a little bit later. Like, I wouldn't have the emotional energy to, like, listen to them if they were having a hard time. Like, I just, I was letting them down. And... Like, man, I, I need to make a change. Like, I need to, I need to maybe listen to Rich and, like, I need to start taking care of myself and, like, to, to take care of them. And, you know, I, I wanted to, like, get in shape. And, like, living in Santa Monica is, like, hard not to, right? Like, you, like, there's free yoga classes on the beach and everyone's good looking and everyone has a six pack and, you know, and is, like, healthy and, like, there's hikes everywhere and, like, it's, it's kind of contagious. And so, I can never imagine myself in a gym even today. Like I, if I went to an Equinox, I would have no idea what to do. Like I travel, I go to hotels and like I go to the gym and I feel so awkward. Like I get into like the elliptical and I'm like, what, what am I fucking doing here? Um, like I just don't know what to do, you know? And like, I can like lift a weight, but I feel like an imposter. I'm like, what are you like, cause I don't know how to do it. Right. And it's like, I guess how some people feel on bikes. And so I, I was like, man, like, I can't skateboard as much as I want to because like, you know, I need my hands to cook. Um, and you know, so I was like, what do I really like? What did I like as a kid? And I was like, I really like riding bikes. Like that was really fun. And like, you know, and the idea of like, listen, I'm covered in tattoos and like a chef, like the idea of like shaving your legs and like putting on spandex was like probably not like a driving force to getting into bikes. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I went to a bike store and I remember like, I, I was so afraid I was intimidated and like, 
I shouldn't have been, but like I was like, it was new. And like, again, like here's my cocky, arrogant attitude like flared up. And like, I just lied. I was like, you know, I, I, I was like, I saw this bike and it was like $4,000. And I'm like, all right, like if I buy this expensive, like top of the line bike, you know, like I'll, I'll have to do it. Like I'll have to ride. It will force me. But like the guy who was helping me is like, oh, you, you know, you ride a lot. I'm like, yeah, all the time, bro. Like I'm a huge rider fucking lying. Um, and so I test rode the bike and I get back. I'm like, cool, I'll take it. He's like, awesome. I'm like, all right. So we get to the cash register and he's like, it's like going to be like $13,000. I'm like, uh, no, no price tag right here. says 4,000, like $13,000 for a bike. Are you like wrong? It doesn't have a motor in it. And he's like, oh, no, that's just for the frame. And I was like, I'm an asshole. Like, and I was like, I was embarrassed because I can't afford a $13,000 bike. And oh, what am I doing? And I was like, oh, yeah, I got to, I kind of like, I should have fucking asked questions. Like, what am I doing? Like, I just, like, I was lying this entire time. And I could have, like, I saved my entire day in, in my embarrassment. And so... You know, and, like, also, like, the guy was, like, just not really into the sale. Like, he could probably tell I was lying. So I went up the street to another bike shop. Um, and, like, I was, like, I'm pretty embarrassed at this point. And so, like, I went in and I'm, like, and I clarified. I was, like, hey, guys, I don't know what I'm doing. I want to spend, like, less than $3,500, $4,000 maybe, like, all in. I need help. And like, I asked for help and this is like, I'm really bad at asking for help in life. And I've gotten better as I gotten older, but like, man, like that was something that you didn't do a lot. Like, you know, um, you just did it. You just, you, you figured it out on your own. And uh, there was a guy named Jim, um, who was like, let me, let me help you. Like, let me hook you up. Like he walked me around. He like, we took like five hours explaining it, introduced me to other writers and it was like this uncomfortable thing. The first time I was in the kitchen and like got me set up, didn't oversell me on things and like introduced me to other writers. And what I found out is cycling is like so, so synonymous to like cooking in a kitchen that like there's structure and chaos. There's this like beautiful flow that you get into riding in a group of people you don't know, but you're inches apart and you're going 40 miles an hour. And if someone does something wrong, like everyone could get hurt. And like the same in the kitchen, maybe not the hurt part, but like you're doing 800 covers. You get this flow with people that you've worked with for so long that like, you know what they're doing, even though that you're not them. Like you, it's a dance. You yeah. know that, that veg is coming up in two minutes and meat is coming up in a minute and you're doing this. And like you watch their body movement and all of a sudden you can see them doing something and you're like, Oh, I got to slow down because they're doing this. Like it becomes special. And then it takes one person to screw that whole thing up and same thing with cycling. And, you know, I fell in love. It was the only other thing in my life that like, other than cooking that like I instantly fell for, I became an addict for, I, wanted to know more about it. I wanted to know all the stuff, the gear ratios. Like it was just, it was like cooking, but like different. And, you know, luckily, um, to become good at cycling, like you probably can't smoke cigarettes and you probably can't dro drink every night and do cocaine every night. And so like it became a better drug for me. It became the drug that I needed compared to the other ones. And like, I, I ended up becoming sober. I'm three and a half years sober now. I started riding bikes like five years ago. 
four years ago. Yeah, five, five years ago. And I, I don't ever worry about not being sober because of the bicycle. Um, awesome. And becoming an athlete, we sort of talked about this, like, it's funny, like, in my professional life, I never thought about, like, applying stress and adapting and then getting better. Um, I always thought, like, you work hard and you just get better at something and you continue to work hard and there's always stress. But, like, what I learned from cycling is that, like, it's all self-induced. Like, if you want to go hard up a hill, like, you can only go as hard as you'll allow yourself. But eventually, like, that, that one speed just gets easier because you adapt to it and you get better and you can actually start seeing results of getting better. Um, you feel better. Um, and like it became probably the most impactful thing in my life of like becoming an athlete with all this experience in the kitchen. It's, you know, I, I feel that that personality in a way, and, and it, been there to an extent myself, a little bit of that, that addictive personality and swapping one behavior in a way for, for another um, in the instance of going from the unhealthy to, to the healthy is such an enlightening experience and, and cathartic experience, but it is you, you, that, that addiction and that rush that you get from physical activity, whatever your quote-unquote drug of choice is, whether it's cycling, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's yoga, whatever it is, uh, that change is it is monumental in your life and you again can't really live without without that exertion. You know, like I don't know what to do with myself when I wake up in the morning on on a quite a day off. You know, I mean physically I may need the day off, but mentally more than anything I have to put in some form of activity, not even to the extent that you do on the bike, but it's become such a part of my routine, such a part of who I am, and a replacement, a better one, for so many other behaviors or activities. That I, like my number one goal, I always say, I just want to make sure that I'm not hurt or injured because yeah. I don't know what I would do if I, if I couldn't do this. Oh, my that. God. Hmm? It, would be, it, would just be, it would be detrimental. Like I, you see professional athletes get hurt. And like, it's my release. It makes me, it, it allows me to, to perform in my other life. And like, if I got injured, like you said, like, man, like it's, it's, it's like, I fell on a bike maybe in November and I landed on my face, like broke my bike, got stitches across my face. Um, like really like laid it down pretty good. And the next day I rode a bike. And like, while I was concussed and had fresh stitches in my face, I went to a bike store and I bought a new bike frame. Like, it's a powerful drug. Now, like, there's a lot of benefits to it, but like, you know, I think I look at it this way with athletics and, and you know, like, I'm never going to be a professional athlete. Like, I don't have aspirations to do it. Like, I just mm -hmm. love being better at it. But like, I look at it this way is that like, when you're young, everything is pretty successful. Like it is new, right? Like you learn how to parallel park a car and like your, your parent or whoever teaches you is like, awesome. Great job. You parallel park. Like, Oh my God, how great is that? You know, like you get into college and people celebrate it. You graduate high school and people celebrate it. Like you kiss your first girl and you celebrate it. Like there's so much celebration on these like pretty like commonplace achievements. Yeah. Right. 
And then you get to an adult and then you have like big achievements. Like you just like, you know, started a company. Everyone's like, cool, man. Like I'm kind of busy with my own stuff or you bought your first house and everyone's like, yeah, man, that's awesome. Like, congratulations. Like they just become expectations, you know, mm-hmm. like, and so these things that are like, that you want to continue to celebrate or like, everyone's like, yeah, whatever. Like, that's great. Like you got a promotion at work. Like, you know, congratulations, Jim. Like, and so, like, they're less successful, and so, like, you don't celebrate them. And what I found with athleticism, and at least with, like, riding bikes, is that, like, I can feel successful by 9 a.m. and, like, already feel successful for the day. Like, I can do a faster time up a hill, or I can do an effort, or I can, like, win the group ride, or I can, like, just do something, or I can, like, have a two-hour conversation with one of my great friends, like, while riding up a hill. Like, I, by 9 a.m., I feel more successful than most people do, like, the entire week. Yeah, I think it's, it's something it's something special. And when you get kind of bit by that and it becomes part of your routine, and I really like what you said about, look, there is a dichotomy. Sure, do you want to win maybe getting up the hill? And maybe some days you will. But on the other day, you just want the camaraderie and you want the conversation and you want to feel a part of something and you want to get, you want to get that, that sweat, that release, that satisfaction or that feeling of, of a little win in the morning before the rest of, the day, in, in some capacity, starts to knock the shit out of you a little bit, like like a lot of them do. Yeah, and really think, but also like, you get to check in like with yourself, like, and I think, like, then you go into like working out and yoga, and then you go into eating, which we haven't really talked about, but like, like, eating is funny, you know, like I never thought about how I felt after eating until I started eating well, mm-hmm. and I never thought about how I felt in my body until I started exercising. Right. And so like, I always felt horrible when I smoked cigarettes, I'd wake up in the morning, like at nine, you know, I just felt like drained. And I was like, Oh, it's cause I'm working 15, 16 hours a day. Like this is horrible. My life is always painful. But like now I could work 15 hours a day, ride 40 miles, do pushups at night. And I feel awesome. Yep. You know, like, and so, like, I don't eat bad now, not because, like, I'm afraid of gaining weight or whatever. I don't eat bad because it doesn't make me feel good. And I think that's this new thing that I am not mean to people at work and I care about because it makes me feel better. Like, I'm selfish in that way. Like, I don't want to yell at someone because that doesn't make me feel good, let alone them. Like, I don't – I want to exercise – not because like I want to be buff and take my shirt off in public. Cause I still would never do that. Um, I'm just always afraid of it. Like I just, I do it because like I'm selfish and it fuels me. Like it makes yeah. me feel good. And what I feel is like, I love me. Like I love me so much that like, that is what health is. It's not about performance. It's about how much you really care for yourself. And like the more I perform, the more I'm an athlete, or, you know, an athlete. And the more I take care of people, the more I feel good about myself and love myself. And like, and so, so therefore if someone beats me in a sprint or if someone doesn't like me for being talkative or loud or whatever, like, that's fine, man. Cause guess what? Like I like me and like, man, that, it took me a long, long time to get there. Um, and I still struggle with it, man. Like I still have, voices like I still like 
am nervous and insecure. Like I just started this company split and you know, like split nutrition started as this like want of having better food on a bike. And like it, I know what I do. I, I have no idea what I'm doing, man. Like I, I don't know CPG. I don't have 20 years of experience in CPG. Like um, I didn't know about distribution and UNFI and buybacks and promos and master cases and pallets. I, I, this is, I am learning as I go, but I've surrounded myself with the most talented team. I found the best of the best. And I have, I've, 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 I've just begged them to join forces with me and they have. And like, man, like that is that one moment of not asking for help on a bike. Like I've realized that like, if you do ask for help, it's pretty special what you can actually get. And if you do tell people, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing. It's amazing how much they will help you. And you know, with split, we're still learning. Like we're trying to like, we're the first ever peanut butter and jelly snack pack. Like we're four ingredients. We chose not to use palm oil in the nuts, knowing that, you know, our nut butter is going to get hard and you have to massage it. You have to knead it. And people are going to be like, Oh, this sucks. Like it doesn't come out perfect for me, but instead I don't want to use palm oil. That's destroying the rainforest. I don't want to use palm oil. That's not good for you. Like I want to use things that are good for you. And you know what? If, if you have to need it a little bit, like, I'm willing to take that gamble because I want to give something that's good for people that I can feel good about. And so like, you know, but starting split, it's funny, you know, like I'll sort of be a little more vulnerable here. Um, about a year and a few months ago, my dad passed away suddenly. Um, he got diagnosed uh, with pancreatic liver and lung cancer uh, in October, November of 2017 and he passed away in February, 2018. And it was like out of the blue. He was still a professor, still working every day. And it went fast. And like, I, I never understood when people understood like battling cancer until I witnessed it firsthand and what that word is so specific for. Um, and I was lucky enough to take some time off and, you know, spend with him and just be with him. Um, and, you know, so I, you know, it's pretty fresh off the boat of not having a father uh, who's really been this driving force in my life and I had to make this decision uh, in 2018 in like August. I was like, man, like I've worked my entire life to have these restaurants. I have a group of people who I adore and I love and I work with every day who work so hard to make me successful, you know, to who, who, are doing or working while I'm sitting at home or working while, you know, I'm doing something else. Like all these people are working and granted they're getting paid, but they're doing it because they care. And I've all these people and I've I worked so hard to get to this point, but I also have this new thing that I really believe in. I believe that it can make a positive impact in the world. I believe that you can make a packaged food that has real ingredients in it that isn't cutting corners and you can actually give it to people in food deserts. And I also believe that a fat and a sugar is really beneficial, especially for athletes. And, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to let all these people who care about me operate my restaurants. I'm still going to be involved, but I'm going to totally step away a little bit from the day to day. And I'm going to start this new company, not knowing anything about how to do CPG. And like, 
two years ago, I would have called my dad and been like, man, like, what am I doing? Like, help me, mentor me, like, talk to me, talk to me through this. Like, you're the smartest guy I know, like, help me. Like, and you're also kind of a, the backup plan. Like, if it all screws up, man, like, you can always kind of go sleep on your dad's couch. And, man, it was the first time in my life, like, I really felt alone on that. Like, I didn't have, like, it went really, like, primal of, like, I'm now the five-year-old who misses his dad and, like, kind of, like, got, like, sad. I was like, fuck, like, what do I do? Like, I was scared. And, like, you know. Um, it's actually even hard to talk about right now. Um, oh, look, I appreciate you sharing it. it, it yeah. I sit down, I listen to your, and I hear your story and, and the tone of your voice as you say it, and it takes me back. I, I mean, I'll, I'll share it with you too. Look, I was 17 when my father passed away. Uh, from, I went through that lung and pancreatic cancer as well. And I'll wow. go back to, to that 17 year old of just kind of starting college. Um, and there's still at 46, I don't think rarely a day that goes by that I don't think about him or wish I could ask a question you know, yeah. or be there based around every decision, big, small, or otherwise. You know, that it, it's, an, it's an unfillable void. Do we persevere? Do we go on? Um, do certain aspects of it motivate us, drive us, inspire us? Yes. Do certain other, you know, things still creep into my mind of, of feeling sorry for myself, you know, sometimes, or even for my kids that don't have a grandfather that I wish they had gotten to know? Of, of course. Man, that, yeah. that right there is probably, that was the hardest thing for me to uh, grapple with like I understood that like once you get stage four you know pancreatic liver and lung like, it's it's a race against the clock right there's not like a coming back mm-hmm. and like you know and so like I thought about it I was like man like this guy was such a good father to me right and like I just remembered all the things like he would build skateboard ramps for us and like and I was like man like I don't have kids and I want kids mm-hmm. you know but like that took the biggest toll on me. I remember it was like one of the first times I really broke down about it was when I realized that like, no matter what I did, unless I went and adopted a kid that day, like no matter what I did, my dad was never going to meet my wife. Sorry. Um, it's hard to talk about it. Uh, or a kid. Right. Um, and it sucks. Uh, because they were so impactful in my life that like, that was the last thing to sort of like show your parents, like it, it, it worked out. Mm-hmm. Look, I think that you, yeah. you carry the memory and you, you carry the emotion and you put it towards everything you do. And I try just for me personally to think, am I leading by example? You know, yeah. am, I, am I doing the best that I possibly can? Um, and is he watching over sure. here? And does that mean you know, that, and he's, and he's, look, he's watched me fail a million times too. I'm not afraid, <laughs> I'm not afraid of failure. Um, mm-hmm. I think I probably would have failed less had he still been around. You know, you think about all of those things too. But am I doing the best that I possibly can? Am I passing those traits and those experiences on to, to my kids and in the way that I live every day. 
I think that's the best the best that you can do. And for me, that makes it it makes that keeps it positive, I guess. And yeah. I'm articulating you know that well. I can't change the situation. I have to make the most of the situation. Sure. Um, and at every event or everything that's going on in my life, my kids' life, my my wife's life as well, can I put a little bit of him into that? Can I tell them a little bit about you know him at those instances in there too, so they things like it not not forgotten physically physically gone and not present, but certainly not forgotten if that if that makes sense I think a million percent like that you know like it's and again like they'll know him through you, right, and I think it goes back to that like adaptation of stress like man like it's like there's no boohoo moment of like, oh, I lost my father and parents, like, because everyone does, and it's like it's it's something that everyone has in common, right? Um, and it takes a toll on everyone differently, and I think that's like, you know, like the, exactly what you said, like the positive to it is like, man, like I get to teach the things that he taught me to my kids, and like, well, he may not be teaching them, like he, like you said, like he is in a good way, you know. I think that's the. Um, like that's that is the the benefit of it is like I'm lucky enough to have had a good father like I'm lucky enough to be like teary eyed and sad and telling you that that because like some people don't no, you know um, and so like yep. I feel so good about that you know and I think so kind of like to go back to like the split like it was the first big decision of my life um, that I sort of made without having like that support. And, you know, I kind of like had this track record of like, go into things that are way above your head, you know, like starting at Nobu, going to the Fat Duck, like going to Berkeley, like I do really well in situations where I'm not qualified. I, I need that. I think I need to be surrounded by people who are so much better than I am because that's where I find my motivation to be driven. And like, I think that goes from being an athlete. I think that goes from being a human. I think that goes from being a boyfriend. Like I try to find people who are so much like smarter, more compassionate, more driven, more successful because like I love surrounding myself with people I admire um, because it reminds me that like I can also maybe be that. Um, and that's, I think what like, I've hired in the restaurants, like my, you know, like my chef who like takes care of everything, a guy named Ben Goodnick, like he, he can cook better than I can. Like he's probably, he's a way better operator than I am. Like he's more talented than I am. And like, but like the fact that like, so my job for him is like, I make sure that he's taken care of. I make sure that I care about him. I make sure that he doesn't have any stresses so he can perform. And it's like that coach, right? Like my coach makes sure I can perform. Right. And so then I go do it. And then like you take that mentality to everything in your life. And I'm sure you do it with your kids. Like your job now is to make sure that they can perform. And I think that's like this really cool phase of life of that. You're this like young gun, like ball of energy as a kid and younger. And eventually you start maturing and gaining experience and gaining facts and like understanding things. And then there's this point where like all of a sudden you start teaching 
And like, I love that moment of like, and they're different and there's different things in life, but like, I'm not there yet to teach in cycling. I'm still obtaining, mm-hmm. but I'm there to teach in cooking. Um, and so like, it's this really fun thing to like admit to being vulnerable because you can't be better at, you can't be a, a, a good athlete unless you're willing to tell someone where your faults are. Like if you tell everyone that you're perfect, like no one can help you. But if you're yeah. LeBron James, who's arguably one of the best and most talented people in the world, like you have to have someone to be, Hey man, I'm actually really not good at this. I need help because that's just going to make you better. And I think the greatest people in any industry from business to successful personal lives to like sports have realized that and are open and honest about where they need to, be, to, to, to grow. I think it's a special place to be. And, and it's come full circle from the, the arrogance uh, at, at some point. You know, yeah. Or the inability to recognize vulnerabilities or express them, you know, and to, to knock the chip off your shoulder a little bit. Um, it's a special place to get to. And it's, and it's really cool to see what can happen when those barriers come down, when those vulnerabilities come out and you get comfortable with, with being, with being yourself, with letting that guard down, with exposing who you are, what you, what it is you don't know and allowing yourself to again, surround yourself with people that are better, brighter, smarter, as opposed to being threatened in a way by them, you know, or keeping, keeping that guard up and to circle back and, it makes the food taste better. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's going to make what taste better when, when you tear open the package because to get the story and the passion and the human aspect behind the food, behind the products. You know, it's one of the things that I love the most about having the privilege to do this is I get to hear and learn from so many amazing people out there yeah. doing so many great things. And then you, and it makes you want them more. It makes you want to support those brands, support those people, to eat in their restaurants, to buy that product. To, you know, you make, I make notes to just connect this person to this person because we're all going someplace or trying to get somewhere and do the best job we possibly can. I mean, I think I, I couldn't agree more. Like, I think it's amazing that, like, if you're just open and honest with people, you realize, and I learned this on the bicycle again, like the more you like, it's like everyone's working hard, man. Everyone's struggling. Like, I think the more you're honest about it, the more you find out that like, you're not alone on that. Like you're not the only one depressed in the office. Like, yep. like I learned this about the bike. It's like, man, like I'm running up a hill and I'm like, I'm dying and I'm trying to convince myself to stop. And like, I'm suffering. And I'm like, you're not good enough. Like, like everyone's going to beat you and you have these negative thoughts. And then what you realize, like what I realized eventually is like, man, everyone next to me is having these same thoughts. It's the only person who wins just allows that thought not to happen for one more second. Like, and like, I really, I've started talking to myself like so positively on the bike, even if I'm struggling to be like, man, you got this. Like, I believe in you. Like I talk to myself and it sounds psychotic, but like it's made me better. And like, I think the same thing with people, like I had no idea about your dad. Like, but now that we both sort of have that memory, like in that shared like thing, like imagine if we known each other for five years and never opened up about that. Like, I think it's amazing what, and listen, like, and I'm not to make this like about this, but like, 
you know, being a guy, it's sometimes even harder to talk about emotions and to like tell people I'm sad. Like, you know, like I'm supposed to be this like tough chef. Like, you know, I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, like cycling is actually, I've gotten a lot of chefs into cycling. There's a charity called Chef Cycle um, mm-hmm. that's brought a lot of chefs into cycling. And it's funny, like, it's become a support group more than anything. Like, obviously, we've raised money for kids in schools, but, like, it has become this network for chefs taking care of chefs uh, and, like, getting healthier and losing weight and being better and sobering up and, like, all the things that I did. A lot more chefs in the country are doing that, like, not a lot of people are aware of, but, like, it's becoming a trend. Like, sober chefs is a thing. And chefs who are athletes is a thing. Like, it's becoming popular uh to be healthy as a chef it's great i think it's great we're seeing this in a number of different areas and i'm glad you touched on it Uh, but living a healthier cleaner lifestyle in the hospitality industry is fantastic whether again whether it's cycling it could be whatever whatever you're into but i hope it's not a trend i hope it's here here to stay Uh, i think the population numbers are, are growing significantly so that it's transcending being a trend and into an actual lifestyle for a larger percentage of, of chefs and executives. I mean, I'm, I feel like just the executive athlete community alone that I've yeah. to be a part of, you know, the, the morning sweat working sessions have replaced maybe the, a lot of the evening happy hour, you know, happy hours, the drinking and the smoking stuff. Um, for sure. And, and I think that's, that's a great thing, and that that should continue. And hopefully, I think it's it's as a leader, it's a lot easier to make investments in people when you watch them make investments in themselves. And yeah. like, it's if you find it's, when you find like-minded people, and when you find like-minded people, and you can bring them together, that communication yeah. opens up. That, that sure. vulnerability opens up. And you did, you touched on it too in, in this conversation. And I think it's hard, it is harder for guys. For whatever reason, yeah. maybe it's easier for guys to listen to this for an hour and get something from it than it is to sit in a room with other guys and talk about it. Maybe we wouldn't be able to do this if we weren't on the phone and we were just face-to-face or with a bunch of people around. But there's an ability to open up to make that connection uh, amongst like-minded people. When you find that connection, that that becomes that becomes easier and then it becomes much more powerful and you take away so much more from it. I think that's the, it's, it's that idea of like the tickets disappearing. Like everyone I think thinks at a certain point that they're the only one going through something, right? That like everyone, we, we feel so unique and we are, you know, but like, I, if I all I have to do is open up to other people and be like, Hey, this is where I'm at. I'm really afraid or I'm really sad or I'm really happy. And man, nine times out of 10, probably the people closest to you are going through the same stuff and just not talking about it. And I think that form of communication and vulnerability, like I think 10 years ago, it was really hard. 20 years ago, it was damn near impossible. Like I remember my grandfather, like that, that man never said, I love you. Like, let alone like anything emotional. But I think, like, you know, like people from like Kevin Love talking about depression and like it is becoming less scary. Health is becoming less scary. Eating quinoa is less scary. 
diet, like having actual like real food is less scary. Like I think change takes a long time. It took a long time for me to change and it's going to take a long time for a lot of people to change. But I think what we're seeing is that change is happening that once people start feeling good and start eating and they start realizing it's not scary, that like it's not harder to, to feel better. It's actually easier. And then they feel better. Like it, it's, that it's addictive. And like, why wouldn't you want to feel better? I think most people truly want to feel better. I think most people want to look better. They want to like think clearer. And I think it's that hard part of the change, you know, like if you eat ice cream every night, like you're going to worry that, Oh man, if I stop eating ice cream, am I going to miss it? And what we realize is like, you don't just stop something. You can't just like cut it out. Like I just can't cut out drugs and not replace it with and another addictive vice, but like you find that vice that is better from being a vice to also healthier. And so maybe that ice cream becomes fresh fruit or that ice cream becomes a steak or, you know, whatever it may be, like it's impossible to just to stop something. Like, I don't think that's really what we ever need to do. Like when people are like, Oh, I don't never eat sugar. Like, like that's just not sustainable. No, but, but at the same time, like, Hey man, like have a, have a cookie. That's awesome. But they also work out a little bit, you know, walk down the street, do something like humans are pretty simple. Like if you really look at it, like we're meant to eat and move, like that's what we're, that's what our bodies are meant for. Like move our bodies and consume food. Like it's a pretty beautiful thing. And if you don't do them together and you do one more than the other, like there is an imbalance. But I think that like, if I told you what I ate, like I eat like 6,000 calories a day. And I'm skinny. Like, it's not because I have a better metabolism. I was a fat kid growing up. It's that my, my, like my body moves and like, you don't have to exercise as much as I do to be, to be in shape. Like, but you do have to eat and you do have to take care of your body. And I think that chefs that are starting to do that for themselves, we're starting to change cuisine across the country because of that. And I think people then go to restaurants and they eat healthier and like 20 years ago, it was about how much butter you could throw in a dish to make it great. And now it's about, hey, this fish was grilled perfectly with a little olive oil and oregano. Like, it's great fish. Yeah, like, we woke up, we threw our butter in our coffee this morning so that we could have our fish, grilled, you know? <laughs> yeah. Change. Yeah, man. So I think change is going to be hard. Changing everyone's going to be hard. But I am, and it's like, I, I, I love this. I love where we are right now. And I'm pretty new to it. You know, people have been doing this for decades and like even centuries, but like I love being a blip on the radar of trying to get people healthier. And like, I love being a blip on the radar of like helping people, you know, like and supporting people to say like, Hey, like, you know, it's going to be scary at first, but like, guess what? Like you're going to feel better and that's going to be the end goal. Um, and I've had a lot of people in my life that have been inspired through my actions that, started taking care of themselves. And like, that's the biggest compliment I could ever get is like watching people I care about starting to get healthier. Like it's, it's pretty fun. Like, you know, I think one of the most special things in the world is my dad was 72. And when he's 70, he started riding. My dad has never exercised. He was always overweight professor. And so like I started getting into cycling and you know, when he became 70, he started riding a bike. Like he got the whole outfit and got a helmet, got out, you know, kits, and I got him a bike and he would just, he, he found the same joy that I did in it. And it was like, it was really cool to be able to go on bike rides with him to be like, huh, this guy's 70 years old and 
like he lost like 30 pounds in the first like year, like, and he just started exercising. Like it kind of means it's never too late for anybody. Yep. It isn't. Uh, all you got to do is start. Yeah, buddy. That's all you got to um, do is start. Jeff, I love this. We could do this for for hours. Right? Yeah, buddy. I would love to have you <laughs> back for for another one because we could touch on so many different topics. But to hear your your perspective, your outlook, your story was just incredible today. So thank you for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your time and sort of giving me a platform to to air air all my stuff, I guess. Now I think, again, it makes the food taste better. It makes the products taste better. So we got to go, we got to go find split nutrition. If you're out there, look for split nutrition. Yeah, we're rolling out to every whole foods in June. So we got two new flavors that are coming out in June uh, for whole foods that are awesome we have a bunch of fun changes and uh we have a new website coming as well uh on the 30th of this month so some fun good stuff to, to help everybody check them out at whole foods at online with nutrition on instagram wherever you can follow what's going on with them you've heard the story you've heard from the man himself go try it out and go get some of the best pizza well not just in california but anywhere right <laughs> so. yeah, i think so out there at Selva. Jeff Mayen, thank you so much for being part of the Midlife Mail podcast today. Can't wait to do this again. Awesome, buddy. Thank you very much for your time and everyone to listen. The Midlife Mail podcast with Greg Scheinman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit innsgroup.net.